This is episode number 294, A Life-Threatening Fall and the Resilience of Trail Runner Hillary Allen. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The biggest thing that I've learned is that I don't think that we really know how strong we are and resilient we are as human beings until something hard happens to us. And I think the people that were, you know, reaching out to me, they've had had something hard that had happened to them too, and they got through it. So it was almost them telling me that it's like, okay, like, I know how much it sucks, even though it wasn't obviously the same experience that I had had, but it was just, just that little bit of being able to relate to one another through kind of a common thread of struggle. It just gave me hope in my own journey. And today's guest definitely has an inspiring story for us. In 2017, ultra trail runner and sky runner Hillary Allen experienced a life-threatening accident that had the potential to completely derail her career as an endurance athlete. She fell 150 feet off a ridge, a cliff, during a race in Norway. With 14 broken bones, she was told that she would never run again and most definitely not compete at an elite level. But she overcame the odds and made a full recovery to return to elite level racing. But it wasn't easy. Hillary is famously nicknamed the Hilly Goat because of her love and skill for running fast on steep technical mountain terrain, and she's raced all over the world. And as she says, she loves to go uphill. In 2021, Hilly Goat published a book about her accident and long road to recovery called Out and Back, which I highly recommend picking up. She has also received her master's degree in neuroscience, physiology, and structural biology, and is a running coach. In this podcast, we talk about her career as a runner. We talk about her injury, or more accurately, her injuries. We talked about overcoming the odds to return better than before, how your best athletic days are ahead of you and the importance of self-belief to get there. We also talk about the spirit of adventure and how important that is. We talked about what sky running is, because that might be something that a lot of people haven't heard from, dealing with the depression from injury and how to get back post-injury, and that is something that a lot of people can relate with. And we also talked about self-belief and how important that is, not only in taking on endeavors, but also from recovering from injury. You may also see the Hilly Goat out at some gravel races if you are into gravel racing, because she's going to do a few this year. Health is one of my personal values and something that we talk a lot about on this podcast, which is why I'm excited about our podcast sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted to consolidate all the supplements that I was taking into one powder form that I could just drink really quickly and get everything in. Turns out it's a lot cheaper to do it that way, and it's a good nutritional insurance to just make sure that you're getting what you might be missing. I also personally really like that there are adaptogens in this one because sometimes I forget to take those, and they make a really big difference. With Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. There's a lot of stuff in there to help you get off on the right foot. They have been evolving over the last 10 years to continuously be updating their AG1 formula, and AG1 is their supplement. It's based on the latest science with constant product iterations and a third-party testing, which I think is pretty cool. They also are a climate-neutral certified company, and they have purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old-growth rainforests. And I live in a rainforest, so this is personally meaningful to me. 
So if you're thinking that you want to just give it a try and see how you feel, see if you like it, I think that you will like it. They make it really easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five of those free travel packs that I mentioned with your first purchase so that you can try it out and see how you feel. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. And again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Sonia to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I'd love to hear what you think about Athletic Greens and thanks for supporting our show by using that link and supporting our sponsor. And one little quick pivot, we talk about mindset a lot in this podcast. And if you're interested in working on your mental skills and your mental performance this summer, or even starting right now, you can find my Mindset Academy that I put together a couple of years ago, taking all of my most important and favorite mindset and sports psychology tips so that you can perform at your best. And it's all about feeling good about yourself in the process. So having more confidence, how to build that confidence in yourself, especially if you've lost it, even if you're coming back from an injury, how to set goals that are reasonable and also focused on process and behavior instead of outcomes. We talk about race day anxiety and resilience. I also talk a lot about motivation in the Mindset Academy, how to balance extrinsic and intrinsic motivation and how important that is whenever you're setting training goals. So go to sonyalooney.com and click on Mindset Academy or go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com and go to Mindset Academy to check it out. It's a self-guided course and I think that you'll really enjoy it. It also comes with a free workbook. Okay, so let's get into today's episode with the Hilly Goat. Hilly Goat, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so glad to be on here. <laughs> it was so funny right before we hit record here, we we're just talking about how I randomly saw your van in at White Mesa Trailhead parking lot, which is in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico in the winter and how we were both, our paths almost crossed. We were both there. <laughs> I know it was so funny after the fact, I know I have like my little van, it can be incognito, but I have a little logo on the back of it. So you, you can't know it's me. <laughs> That's right. I love it. How often are you going on van trips? So it's something that I've done intermittently. I mean, I've done it since I was a kid. Uh, We had like a camper van, but I just recently got mine last year and like road trips are the most fun. Plus it's like a way to kind of have multiple homes. I mean, it's (laughs) so, I mean, I try to do it at least once a month, just like kind of trying to escape the winter in here in Colorado when I get too sick of it. (laughs) Yeah. Like what's your adventure criteria whenever you're trying to figure out where to go? Honestly, now that I am riding a bike more, it's kind of, it's a place that I can kind of adventure on my bike. You know, I'm not a badass like you who does mountain biking, but I do the gravel biking. Oh, please. The trail running you do is like way harder than the mountain. I fall down trail running. Well, I haven't been trail running lately, but I fall down trail running all the time. (laughs) I mean, it's a mix of, you know, kind of going to a new place or even a familiar place that I know I can just get in some, you know, visiting a place that I don't usually run or ride all the time, but I love exploring new places. So just recently I went down to Tucson and I had never been there and it's, you know, a cycling Mecca Mm -hmm. and going down this time of year, you know, it's not too hot and there's an incredible amount of running there. So, I mean, I just like barely scratched the surface. It's a place I'll go back to, but really, I think for me, it's exploring new places on by foot and on, on two wheels. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like if somebody were to just find you now, they would see this incredibly vibrant, adventurous woman who's doing all these really rad things. And they might not know all the things that have happened to you and where you've come from. So you mentioned that you grew up in Colorado. You and I have some 
similar nerdy background in, in science and neuroscience in Colorado. But yeah, so like, I'd love to hear how you got into this adventure of like going out in the forest and seeing where your legs or your bike takes you. Where did that come from? Yeah. You know, I think it did come from just how I grew up. My family, both my parents are scientists. And I think we just had an appreciation as a family for, you know, the the physical world, just because we're all very curious by nature. And so as a family, we'd go out, like that's how we went on vacation. We didn't have so much money. So we would just kind of go on the simplest thing. And that was a road trip and visiting national parks and, you know, not showering for weeks at a time because we were in our camper van. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, it's a way of life that I just really loved because I got to see, you know, I've been to almost every 50 state, every single one of the 50 states. States and, you know, many national parks, national monuments, all of these things. And I just had an appreciation for it. And it's been so incredible to be able to almost, you know, recreate that as an adult and visiting these places that maybe I visited as a young kid, for instance, the Grand Canyon. But it's a completely different experience when I'm running across the whole entire thing and back in a day than, you know, visiting as a young kid when I was seven and only able to walk like, you know, three miles down and then three miles back up again. So it's just given me this appreciation for where I come from and what my parents are trying to instill in me. And then it's, it's created this, I think, craving for exploration and almost, like I said, recreating it, starting anew as an adult. and you know, figuring out what that looks like when it's just me, myself and my own two feet or my, or my bike. Actually, I I was just on my way back from Arizona. I stopped in Utah and Utah is an incredible place. It has so many national parks, but I was outside of Moab. And so one of my favorite places to visit is Canyonlands National Park. And I've been there as a young kid, you know, visiting islands in the sky district, you know, typical national park, you, you know, going on the roads, you do like a short hike. But I remember going to this overlook of the Schaefer switchbacks, like kind of the, the end of the white rim trail, this notorious FKT for mountain bikers. And I remember looking, I'm just like, I saw cars going up it. And then I saw some bikes. I was like, people do that. (laughs) And then, you know, like now fast forward 15 years and I went back to that same lookout point and I was like, yep, I rode up those Schaefer switchbacks the day before. And it's, it's just like a really cool thing to kind of see where you started from and then where you are now. And then it just gives me hope for, you know, the future and what's to come. What similarities and differences do you think kids get out of outdoor exploration versus adults? You know, I think the thing that I love the most about exploring now as an adult is that it makes me feel like a kid. (laughs) And I think the one thing that, that kids have and that I think adults lose, or as we get older, we lose is we lose curiosity. And that is one thing that I think all kids are born with. They're always asking why they're always asking for explanations. They're always, you know, putting their hands in the dirt, things in their mouths. Like, you know, it's like, they're just always kind of quote unquote getting into trouble. Right. But that's what a kid is supposed to do. They're supposed to play. They're supposed to ask questions and be curious about this like huge thing that is life. Right. And, you know, I think as we, you know, get more educated and, you know, more sedentary, that curiosity can kind of get beaten out of us. And that's the one place that 
you know, when I'm running on the trails or riding my bike, I feel so curious and I feel so free. I feel just so in tune with my own body, but then also with the physical world. And it makes me just feel like I'm, uh, it just makes me feel like I'm playing in the mountains and that I'm, I'm just a kid at heart. And I, I certainly am, but I think, I think we could learn a lot from kids is to stay curious throughout our entire lives. Yeah. I actually have this running document. I have a two-year-old. He's just turning two in a couple of weeks here. And it's like the things that I want to continue in my life that I watch him do. Um, (laughs) another thing is like, well, we force them to, but kids like really have to sleep a lot and they, they go to bed (laughs) early because we make them go to bed early. But it just reminds me like, like I'll be in, I'll be going to bed. I'm like, my son went to bed four hours ago and we're getting up at the same time. Like what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really good thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the more active we are, we need to like take care of ourselves. I've never been a night owl, but yeah, being an endurance athlete, like I always joke that I'm a grandma because I love to go to bed early. (laughs) So how did you take this love of, uh, the outdoors as a kid and turn that into running and then trail running and racing? So, you know, it wasn't, I mean, you mentioned that we had, we have some similarities like in our science background. So another part for me that's maintained that curiosity is science, because it's a really cool way to be able to just explore, you know, the physical world again, and like intellectual world. And so I was on track to get my PhD in a neuroscience and physiology program at CU, CU Denver. And it was during graduate school that I actually started running as a means for stress relief. I was a tennis player in college, but I really didn't have enough time or money to really continue to do that. So I kind of took to running because I had a knack for it, like when I was in tennis. And, you know, I started actually running like, you know, 5:30 in the morning with this group of women who they're in their early fifties and they had been running buddies for like the past 30 years. And so they just had so much like knowledge to share with me, but just also just so much joy. And they loved to start their day that way. And they were just, they were eager that, you know, I wanted to, to run with them and how'd you find these ladies? Yeah. It's actually, honestly, it was like, I was trying to look for a run club because I was in Denver at the time. And I was trying to look for a run club that was like close to me that I could kind of run to because I was time crunched. I had to be in the lab by like seven 30. So I just found this group and they happened to be like a mile from where I was living. And then (laughs) And because like you can, you have to register as a running club. And so I was kind of looking at the places near me and that just seemed like the description was just so welcoming. (laughs) And this woman, Janie Day, she uh, was the the leader of it. And she registered the track club just so they could get a key to this track that was like two miles from my house. And so we could do workouts there. (laughs) And Janie Day, she used to run for Reebok. She was Olympic trial marathoner her and Pat Wasik, who I was running with too. And Janie is an engineer. She's like the sole breadwinner for her family. She's got four kids. It's like, she's so impressive. And she, she also happened to be a trail runner. She was like the record holder for the Pikes Peak Ascent and the Mount Washington Ascent. And so she's actually who got me into trail running leading up to my first marathon training for my first road marathon, Janie took me to the trails every Sunday and would just encourage me to get out there for my recovery runs. And after my first marathon, I did like another road marathon. Then I was like, I don't want to do this. I just want to be on the trails. And honestly, it just kind of snowballed from there. I had no idea that trail running was even a sport, let alone ultra running. But then, you know, it's like you dip your toe in and then you just realize it's like this whole new world. 
And then I just kept meeting more and more people and just fell in love with that community. It sounds like the community aspect was really important for you and especially meeting that first group. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because running is such a, like a, a solo sport, right? I mean, it is even when you're competing, but I don't think you can be successful in running without kind of a community behind you. And that for me is what helps me to keep coming back. Yeah. I think that's a cool thing about individual sports too. Like I'm sure you've experienced this with cycling. It's like, you could travel anywhere in the world. And if you found somebody that also loves running or that also loves cycling, you're already part of the community. Whereas it might be different. I, I haven't done a ton of team sports, so I don't know if it's like that with a team sport, but it just seems like that type of community. If you just go anywhere, it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You like riding or you like running? Like let's go for a run. Yeah, I know. It's, it's so funny. I've met I have friends like speckled all over the world. And some of my closest friends are those who I could, who I just like literally met on a run or at a race. And we could just, you know, share these experiences together and these miles and these, you know, almost like suffering on the trail, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it just brings you together. It's like, it's like, it's just this, not only a shared interest, but I think you get to see other people at their core and, you know, like their true, their true selves and true identities. And it's, it's a really powerful uniting force. Yeah. So I want to hear about your decision, like with your PhD program. Cause I was also in a similar, I was in a PhD program at CU Boulder doing electrical engineering, but focusing on neuroscience. And then I worked in a neuroscience lab in the physiology department thinking maybe I'll do a PhD in, in that. And I stopped because I wanted to be a pro mountain biker, but I'd love to hear what your story is. <laughs> yeah. And you know, honestly, I felt like a lot of guilt about it for a while because it was this huge thing that I knew that I always wanted to be a scientist. I mean, I love science. It was something that was just at my core. It isn't my core. And I was full in on this, you know, PhD program. But what I found was that I was just overworked. I was getting almost the creativity, like knocked out of me in this PhD program. And I just, the more I started to run, I felt like it was improving my science and, and that creativity. But then my advisor was like, oh, but you need to spend more time in the lab, even though I was being equally as productive. And I felt like it was this dichotomy. And I, and I just found myself becoming less and less happy pursuing science, which is what I thought I truly loved. And then, you know, kind of wondering more and more about uh, trail running. And it kind of a turning point was in 2014 for me when my first um, season in trail running, I won the U S sky running championship. So it's a race series that takes place across the United States at different locations. And I competed in some 50 K races and I actually ended up winning the series. And after the end of that year, I, you know, I was getting some offers from sponsors and then I just started to think, I was like, this is something that truly makes me happy. Like Hillary, you deserve to just give yourself a year, just give yourself a year see where it goes. And then if it doesn't work out, you can always come back to science. And so, you know, I thought about putting my master's on hold, but I ended up deciding to just, you know, to graduate with my master's and then kind of make the decision, you know, in a year or so. And that was in 2015. And here we are in 2022, and I'm still giving it that year. <laughs> Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to explore that curiosity piece. And it's not, it's not even just having curiosity. It's like, well, I'm going to actually potentially change my career path, but it also sounds like for you, like you said, I might go back to this. So having the ability to go back, if you wanted to create a little bit of space for you to explore the, the running part. Yeah. And I think, and also just because 
science is always going to be an interest of mine. And it's not, you know, I never describe myself as just a runner. I've always described myself as an athlete and first and foremost, like a science nerd. But yeah, you're right. It did give me that space. It almost gave me a permission. But then at the same time, I had to give myself that chance because I thought I would just, you know, I'd be losing out. And my dad actually, he sent me this article. It was some Chinese proverb um, that was like published in the Wall Street Journal. I forget what they're referencing, but it really made it had an impact on me. And it was basically talking about like a tree and a tree is not beautiful because it only has one trunk and it doesn't deviate. It doesn't, you know, branch and grow leaves. Like a tree is beautiful because it branches and it like feeds those branches and it makes leaves and, and, you know, has new, has, grows new branches every year. And like, basically the, the comparison was, is if you only have one interest and you just pursue that, like, you're not going to be this fully formed, beautiful thing like, or a tree as they're comparing it to, and that you need to branch off and explore these other areas of life because that's what makes life beautiful. And I felt like I was really going to miss out if I, you know, had closed the door, you know, on something that really honestly made me so happy and made me feel so alive. And so that was kind of the jumping off point for me. And I still use science. I mean, I'm, I'm a running coach now. I was teaching at Front Range Community College for, you know, several years before the pandemic. Um, I was using my science because I felt like it made me a more balanced person. Like I could never just run or train full time. Like there's so many hours in the day mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd be way too tired to, to do only one thing. But yeah, it's just, it was a, and it still is really scary to like pursue your dreams you know, full heartedly when there's not really a game plan or like a necessary, like a roadmap to this life and career path that I've chosen. In some ways though, I mean, and I'm just speaking for myself and maybe that you can relate to this too, like not having a roadmap to follow almost is what makes it intriguing. And it makes it like, there's room for creativity there because there isn't a roadmap. I mean, yeah, you said it perfectly. It's like, it's adventurous like every day, right? I mean, you definitely have to hustle and sometimes life can feel like a moving target. And I don't know if I'm going to land on said target or not some days, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, it does make it intriguing and it makes it like you, you have to be flexible and, you know, as a chemist and a scientist, like flexibility is maybe not my strong suit, right? Like neuroscience taught me to embrace the uncertainty and embrace that beauty in the unknown. I mean, trail running has certainly taught me that too, you know, and it's something, you know, problem solving constantly. It's like, it's a, it's a really important life skill. And, you know, looking back, it's something that I wouldn't change for nine to 7 PM lab job. (laughs) So what is sky running for people who don't know what that is? So trail running. Okay. I guess I'll start from the beginning. So like, you know, there's road running and trail running. Usually road is on the road, obviously. And trail is like anything off road. And so, um, it can be as simple as as like a crushed gravel path to like a place where I live in, in Colorado, where it's usually involves some sort of elevation gain, like going up a mountain. And from trail running, there's a huge variety of kind of specialities and like niches in the sport. One of which is sky running and sky running. It's basically it's very steep terrain. So a typical sky race, basically you try to find your way up the mountain in the most direct way possible. And same thing for back down. So 
sky racing and sky running kind of got it start in Europe because you can literally, you can start at the sea level, right. And then run to the sky. And usually it's very, it's very direct and, and technical terrain. Now, in the realm of trail running, you can run ultra distances, which is what I do. So it's anything over a marathon. So in a typical sky race, which usually the, the, the distances start at about 50 kilometers, I can gain about 12,000 feet. And then you have to descend that those, you know, on average 11 to 14,000 feet in a given sky race. So it's very, it's very technical. And one of the best kept secrets of trail running is that usually during these runs, you get to hike because the grade is so steep. So you need kind of the help of your hands to, to help navigate the terrain. <laughs> wow. So how did you find that discipline? Yeah. You know, it sounds silly, but honestly, I think it found me because within just a few you know, months and of me getting on the trails and, um, the first year really of me starting trail running, I picked up this nickname called the Hilly goat. (laughs) And it's it's just because I love going uphill. And I think like the steeper, the train, it just was better for me. I just really enjoyed it. So with that said, that first year in 2014, I never even really knew about the sky running series, but there was a couple races that had intrigued me in the U S one of them was called speed goat. It's this race in snowbird in Utah, where you kind of run up to some really tall peaks outside the ski resort to run up and down around and over again. And, uh, so I did really well there. And then I went to this, this race called run the rut in Montana. And I did another race in Flagstaff. They're pretty much a theme. They're pretty much at ski resorts. So you can get on the steepest train possible, but, you know, I just, I kind of had a knack for it. I just had this, this ability. And I think with, with the uh, footwork for the downhill running, it's kind of a skill that you can learn and, and <laughs> tennis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely is. I mean, and, and certainly my relationship with sky running has changed now, but with tennis, I like, I had the kind of the footwork down with the, uh, with the fast feet and it was something that I was able to pick up and yeah, it just was, it just became it just became a love of mine. And then after winning that 2014, I was like, where can I race more of this style of races? And it was in Europe. And so that kind of began my, my, uh, you know, racing in Europe for the past, however many years, six or seven years. (laughs) Why do you love going uphill? You know, I've thought about this a lot. (laughs) And because, you know, everyone asks you, is like, oh yeah, are you uphill or downhill? Right. And I'm always uphill. I think it's because I get to like tune into my senses and I get to be so in the present moment. I never listen to music when I run. And it's because I love listening to my feet. I love listening to my breath. I love like feeling the perspiration, you know, start to gather on my forehead if I'm like moving fast or it's hot. I love the different paces and the changes, like the pitter patter of my feet when it's a bit runnable and I can start to run. And then like, you know, the deeper kind of sound when my, when I have to move into a power hike and, and start like really grinding into the ground to push myself uphill. I just think it's the rhythm that I love so much. Yeah. It's super sensory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you start doing? Like you went to Europe to do sky running. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a big thing there then. It's huge. Yeah. So like I said, it got started there, but 
generally speaking, the, the mountains in Europe are there. It's like, it's kind of like the coasts in the United States. Like there's a lot more vertical relief. And so they're a little bit steeper than the mountains here in Colorado, which are high, but they're not necessarily as steep. And some of the, just, there was just like this, the world series of sky running was like centered in Europe, in France, Spain, Greece, Italy. And so that's where I wanted to be. And plus I love to travel, obviously like from, you know, traveling around the United States is when I was a little kid, I just had a love for traveling too. So I, I saw it as this perfect, you know, marriage of me being able to run and then also explore a place that I'd never have been before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the running took you to Europe and it, you already know where I'm going next. Um, <laughs> the story about your race in Norway and this horrendous, you know, fall and injury that you experienced. Can you tell people about that? Yeah. You know, I think to preface all of this, right. I think everyone has like a moment in their life where things are different, whether that's starting a family or, you know, going to college, moving, starting a new job. For me, it was certainly taking a chance on running, but you know, my life had changed. I would basically live in Europe for about three months during the summertime on my break from teaching where I would do all these sky races and I would pick races that I would just want to do based on like location and competitiveness. And so this one race, um, I had been doing this, you know, since 2015. Um, and one of my big goals was to be ranked number one in the world. And so 2015, I was fifth, 2016, I was third, 2017, I was having an incredible season and I was actually ranked number one in the world for the sky running world series. And it took me to one of like the second to last races of my season. And this was on on Tromso, Norway. It's a incredibly famous sky race um, put on by Emily Forsberg and Killian Journey. So two of the best sky runners out there. So I had to go and, you know, it was just one of those days that it was just, I was feeling, I was feeling good. I was feeling ready to do well in this race. I was having, I think I was in third place kind of around the halfway point and one minute I was running and the next minute I was upside down and I was falling and it was literally it happened so fast that I couldn't even brace myself for impact. Like sometimes that happens when you're, when you trip and you are about to fall, you're like, Oh, okay. Like this is happening. Let me brace. But that didn't happen. I was just, I was airborne and I was tomahawking through the air. I remember hitting the ground several times. And then the next thing I remember there were people gathered around me and, um, you know, some sort of, um, like rescue operation was taking place, but I basically, I fell 150 feet off of this ridgeline in the middle of a race. And from that moment on my life, my life has been different. Yeah. So you were in this race and as a sky runner, does falling off a ridgeline ever cross your mind? (sighs) Honestly, no. So, I mean, this type of terrain, it's something that I'm pretty like confident on and familiar with. And the irony of it all is that I don't describe myself as a risky person. I don't take risks. Like I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not like, of course I'm trying to move over this terrain efficiently. It's rocky. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm running or fast moving, but I'm not being reckless. I'm not trying to, you know, jump on boulders and like, you know, (laughs) be, be reckless. It's just not me. I'm very calculated, but I want to move efficiently. And so 
you know, certainly it's happened. People have definitely gotten hurt, but like the typical, you know, twisted ankle, like, or fall and break your arm or something like this, but certainly not falling off of a, off of a ridgeline or cliff. That's not something that has, that usually, you know, crossed my mind or anyone else's mind. I mean, this type of terrain that I was moving on, it was like third class. So it's like, you know, you're, it's steep. So, but you're kind of like using your, it's like third or fourth class. So you're using like both hands to kind of maneuver your way through the terrain. So yes, it's, it's dangerous if you're not equipped with the appropriate skills, but I, you know, would train on this type of stuff. So I've certainly equipped with it. It's just that there's the reality of going into the mountains that, you know, there is a certain level of risk. that's never at zero. You can, you can approach zero with your skills, mm-hmm. but it's never at zero. And I think, yeah, it was just a mix of being unlucky, but also extremely lucky with how kind of the events played out that day for me. Yeah. So how did they play out? I mean, 150 feet is a really long way. Like if people think about that just for a second, <laughs> I know. And if you, I mean, so as I mentioned, I didn't, I didn't fall 150 feet, like absolutely like in one fell swoop, but I did hit an impact like the side of the ridge. I don't know how many times, five times maybe before I finally stopped, but it's a very far ways. I mean, I, I know, you know, just in my community in Boulder, people who are part of the, the search and rescue mountain rescue team where people have fallen, you know, a fraction of that and they've died or they've been paralyzed. And so, and, and the people there that day, because it was during a race, there's people there that had witnessed the event, you know, they, they would, they did not think that I would have survived that fall. And so there had to be one of these racers, actually, he was behind me and he saw it happen. And so he scrambled down to me because he, he's actually trained in search and rescue. So very lucky for me. So he just, he reacted, he didn't even think. And so then he was one of the first people on the scenes and then, you know, initiated a rescue operation. So I had to, I was basically taken by helicopter to Trumso to, you know, get checked out. But in total, I had broken a total of 14 bones. And I mean, I was like cut all over. I had to stay almost two weeks in the hospital in Norway before I was even strong enough to travel back home. And it was then that, you know, I was told that I probably would never run again just because of a very severe injury in my, and the ligament in my right foot. When you woke up in the hospital, was your first thought like, Oh, I'm lucky that I didn't die or that I'm not paralyzed. Or was it like, Oh my gosh, like this is awful. So I remember on the side of the mountain, like me, like I was like, kicking my legs. And I remember thinking in my head, like, okay, I'm not paralyzed. Like I can move my legs, but it wasn't until, so the race is on Saturday. It probably wasn't until like Tuesday. That's like when my, my mother came to, from the United States, she came to see me. And, um, it wasn't until Tuesday that I actually realized what had happened. I remember like a people that I knew, like coming in and out of the hospital bed, but I think at hospital room, but I was so I wasn't even able to move from, from the hospital bed, but, and it was, life was just such a blur. I only remember faces and people talking about an accident, but I didn't realize that that had actually happened to me Mm. until like several days. So I think it was like, my body was 
almost in survival mode, like still pumping adrenaline, but then also probably, you know, I was on painkillers. I didn't really know, you know, what, which direction was up, let alone, you know, what had happened to me. But then once I realized the accident, like that, it was me that had fallen. I was surprised how quickly I had started slipping into a depression because obviously my first thought was, how am I, like, I was like looking at my legs and just my casts. And I was just thinking to myself, how am I even supposed to walk or move again? And it, everything just seems so, so hopeless and helpless. And I was surprised how quickly I was like starting to lose hope, even in those, that first week of being in the hospital. Yeah. So how do you go from being in this, like slipping into a depression to deciding, I'm going to get up and start moving to, they told me I'm never going to run again. Well, I'm going to run again. Like, how do you get from that point? But I know there's probably a lot of steps between point A and point B, but how do you even start? You know, and this is probably the, the hardest thing. And maybe I had a bit more, you know, practice than I had given myself credit for of, you know, that first step that I took towards the unknown of in, into my running career. Like I didn't have a roadmap, but I, I knew I wanted to do it. So I decided to figure out day by day what that looked like. But so in combination with that, the biggest thing for me goes back to community. It goes back to the having people surrounding me that were not willing to let me just give up. And that had an incredible impact on what was happening, what I was thinking in my own head and the decisions that I was making. And it started with this nurse in Norway where I think she saw, you know, like how, how depressed I was, that I was becoming. And it was like, you know, the sixth day and I still hadn't even gotten up out of the hospital bed. Right. Like, like had to kind of like moved me from side to side, but I hadn't even gotten up. And so she told me, she's like, Hillary, like you have to try you are stronger than this. And you, you, this is not when you give up. And so I kind of looked at her and I was like, Oh, and then, uh, (laughs) I was, I mean, she got me out of that next day. She, that was in the morning that day, she got me out of my hospital cot and like plopped me in the chair to eat my breakfast. That was just right next to the bed. But you know, it started there and it started with people you know, she told me that, but then me actually deciding to move and then take action showed me how I could do it and how the more I did that with, you know, surrounding myself by these positive people, it gave me strength and it gave me a chance to explore that strength that I had. And then, you know, the more I didn't want to give up, I mean, and then the other fact is like, you know, social media, I mean, it can be horrible, but it can also be so amazing. And for me, it was incredibly amazing because I got this outpouring of support from, you know, all these people that had been following my race, uh, my racing friends, family, complete strangers that were sending me messages on Instagram, Facebook, like any way, email, any way they can get a hold of me you know, like through my website and like sending me care packages or just sending me like notes of encouragement. And that was really, that was just, it was incredible because I felt like I had this community behind me that, you know, I had to try. And the more I tried, the more hope I got. And yeah, but then, I mean, I literally was taking it day by day because I had no idea where it was going to lead. 
Yeah. It sounds like you really took your like values of curiosity and exploration and applied it to this journey to see like, well, what's, what happens if I take one step and one step more and then supporting yourself with that community and that that community piece was so important. Yeah. I mean, I think what the biggest thing that I've learned is that I don't think that we really know how, how strong we are and resilient we are as human beings until something hard happens to us. And I think the the people that were, you know, reaching out to me, they've had had something hard that had happened to them too, and they got through it. So it was almost, you know, them, them telling me that's like, okay, like I know how, how much it sucks, even though it wasn't obviously the same experience that I had had, but it was just, just that little bit of being able to relate to one another through kind of a common thread of struggle. Mm-hmm. It just gave me hope in my own journey. Mm-hmm. And how long did it take for you to actually decide to go for that first run? Oh man. Yeah. So it was a long time. I mean, before I was really strong enough because I, as I mentioned, I had a ligament tear, like rupture in my right foot. So I had to have surgery. So I was non-weight bearing for three months and that's on that foot. So it was a long time. So I think my first run was about six months after falling and it was a huge mental battle there's a huge amount of excitement with it, but I think the turning point for me was in my PT and my gym when I started to do jumps and it was scary, but I realized I was like, okay, well, running is just like a series of jumps. Like I bet (laughs) I could, I bet I could do this. And, uh, yeah, just kind of just that, you know, the ups and downs and, you know, obviously recovery is not all just like progress. It's filled with a bunch of setbacks too, but it was just, I I felt like I had this, just this hope that I could get back to it. And then, and that once it finally happened, like I wasn't, I wasn't judging it because obviously it was really slow. It was like really like, you know, like 30 seconds of running and then walking, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it just felt so good to get back to that moment, that motion again. And the kind of that sensory that I, the sensory, I don't know, overload that I love that. It just, again, it just, it was just another kind of like shot of hope in the arm. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like little bits of hope makes it grow. And a lot of people like the majority of people never sustain injury that like you have, but a lot of people have sustained, like you said, some, something like you mentioned earlier, like a, a twisted ankle or a broken arm and just, and for a lot of people that can feel, you know, really overwhelming in and of itself. So like, what advice do you have for people who are trying to come back from an injury or who are just sitting in the injury? You know, you said non-weight bearing for three months, didn't, you didn't run for six months. There's people that just think they, they can't do their sport for a really long time. And they feel totally lost. Like, what do you say to those people? how I would, you know, advise them. First of all, it's hard. Like that's the first thing I would say is that it sucks. It really sucks to be away from something that you love. So to have kind of compassion for yourself in the fact that it's hard and that you're probably grieving, but then to just take it one day at a time and to lean into things that make you feel good that aren't, you know, sport related. Um, that's a, that's a good thing. And the second thing would just trying to do something every day that will benefit your recovery and get you one step closer to, you know, to, to getting back out there. And sometimes that's resting and doing nothing, which I think those are the hardest days. And sometimes it's, you know, doing really boring PT work that might not seem like it has any effect on your ability to run a ride again, but believe me it does. And so I think really just like breaking it down into digestible chunks is the best way to go about it. 
Yeah. So it sounds like number one, acceptance of where you are at. And then number two, trying to look for positive or, you know, moments of gratitude, no matter how small they are, even outside Mm -hmm. the sport. And then number three, celebrating and being excited about very, very small improvements, which can be really hard because you said they could be boring too. (laughs) It can be so hard. And I think it's, it's so hard, like to not get trapped in like a, like comparison. Right. Because I feel like, especially as athletes, we, we always, we always, you know, compare ourselves to like our past times or our past selves. But that was also something that I really worked on. And it's like, I wrote it down, like some, having some different mantras. It's when one of mine that was really powerful is that believe that your best athletic days are ahead of you. And it can seem really silly because, you know, how is that possible? If, you know, like literally as you age, like you get slower, but to me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you're constantly evolving and changing as a person, as a human, as an athlete. So that means your goals are going to change and evolve with you. So I think it's amazing to think that your best athletic days are ahead of you because how do you know what you're going to accomplish, you know, five, 10 years from now, it just seems it creates an excitement for me. Yeah. And also like defining what best athletic days mean. Like, does that mean you're your fastest? Does that mean like you feel the most fulfilled? Does that mean you've had the most adventure? Like there's so many ways to define that for yourself. Totally. Yeah. And I think like, that's the secret is like doing, doing something just because you love it. Like that's the best reason. And that was literally the reason why, you know, my, why came, um, of why I wanted to try to run again. It's because I felt that it was one of, it was one of my favorite ways to move and it didn't matter what speed that took on. I just wanted to get back to that motion because it made me feel so alive and whole. So you decided to go back to sky running and you even went back to that race. So how did you make that decision? Oh man. I thought that I had always wanted to go back to Tremso <laughs> because I mean, it, you know, it's kind of this like big, scary monster that was like, you know, over the whole country of Norway. And I was like <laughs> afraid of this place. And like, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be like held over my head forever. And I also wanted to go back there to see it and to like, have it be a healing experience. I mentioned that man who was behind me, who came down and rescued me. His name is Manu. And we've become friends because, you know, he literally saved my life. And it was so it was two years after I'd fallen off the cliff, I was back to running and I actually had sustained another injury. I had broken my ankle and then I came back from that and I was racing again. And I had literally just crossed the finish line of this race in Italy, one of my favorite places in the world. And I had won this race. And as I was crossing this finish line, I was like, you know what, Hill, like you've got to go back. Like, this is just the time. Like you, you came back from another injury that you didn't think was going to be possible. Like you need to go back to Tremso and just like, you need to go there and experience it again. So I called Manu, asked if he would do the race with me. He agreed. And then I called my mother and told her that she needed to come up there with me too. (laughs) And then I called my coach and everyone was like super supportive. And I just wanted it to be this healing event to show myself like, I didn't want to like conquer the race. I just wanted to go to this place that, you know, was scary, but represented this one moment in my life that literally had changed everything. And I no longer wanted to be afraid of this place or this race anymore. So did you feel like a sense of relief or anything whenever you number one, got past that spot where you fell? And then number two, when you finished. 
So I actually, before the race, I actually went to the spot where I fell with Manu because I didn't want to be like overwhelmed kind of, you know, in the moment during the race. And it was, it was eerie. That's really the only way I can describe it. I don't really, I remember the points of the race and the trail leading up to that place where I fell, but I don't remember like anything that caused the fall or anything like this, but I, but my body, like, I think my body definitely remembered, like I just felt antsy. I felt just like, it just uncomfortable and just like I needed to get out of there. And in fact, this is on the Wednesday before the race. And I actually almost like bought a plane ticket home that I, cause I didn't think that I could do the race again, but I like, you know, gave myself some time, wrote about it and hung out with Manu and, uh, you know, and he's like, you know, we can do this together. And he told me that he's like, you're more than just one bad race. Like, you know, you like you can't define yourself or beat yourself up just on this. And then the race came. And actually when I was on the ridge on the place that I had fallen, we were like, Manu and I were just like talking and laughing and joking and like having such a good time because we were just so in the moment and not thinking about that, you know, that one bad moment two years ago, we were just really enjoying moving our bodies through this, this, this space, but crossing the finish line, like Manu, like my mom was there. Manu was there. Um, another one of my friends, Finn was there, who was on the rescue team. It was just, again, back to community. It was just so incredible to share that experience, not only with Manu, And, you know, my mom who, you know, the last time she was in Norway, her daughter was in the hospital, but with all of the community members that were still there volunteering on the race day two years ago, and they were still there on that race when I returned and just cheering me on, you know, like every step of the way, it was just, it was just an incredible experience. It sounds to me that you have a high degree of self-belief just from like all the stories that you've told over the last 50 minutes, a lot of times like whenever you, someone says that to you, you're like, well, I just am doing what I need to do. But like, where do you think that that came from? Or how do you think that you've built that over time? Really good question, because I think it is something that we have to work on. And I think in this culture where, you know, we're constantly told that we're not good enough, or we're comparing ourselves to other people that it can just, you know, we can wear ourselves down. And certainly I'm not sure if you're like this, but I certainly am. Like, I feel like I almost have to trick myself to keep on, you know, performing and like, oh, you're, you know, like you're not good enough. Like what goes on between your, your ears, sometimes it can be really negative. And so I honestly don't think I really learned about the power of self-belief until this accident, until this recovery, because I could see in real time my, myself healing, but then I could also see the power and influence of my thoughts and what belief like the role of belief in not only my day-to-day life, but just in, you know, projection into the future and really the why behind everything. And it's been a great opportunity for me to kind of practice that in day-to-day life. And of, of course I'm not perfect at it. Right. But it's, it's just a good reminder to really, you know, at the end of the day, if we can only be our own best friend and our own, you know, biggest fans. And if we can't do that for ourselves, how could we expect that to do that for other people? And yeah, I mean, that's just, that's what I try to do every day is like, keep on showing up for myself when it gets hard. Because I think those moments where it's the hardest to to show up for yourself, those are the most important times to really believe in your own 
power and self-worth. Yeah. I love that you talked about the intrinsic nature of that because it is, it does have to come from within. And if you're in a place where you're outwardly comparing to other people or what other people are doing or all those things, it takes you out of that intrinsic space of, do I believe in myself or not? And like, for me personally, like I have so much self-belief in a vacuum, like when I'm not around people, right. when it comes to like, even like sponsorships, like I know you do a lot of your own sponsorship stuff. Like you have to ask for money and you have to like go to these races and there's in a vacuum. It's like, well, yeah, I'm worth this. But then when you start getting around other people, it's a little, that, that little voice of self-belief or that loud voice of self-belief can become, you know, muted or quiet because now this mm-hmm. external thing is taking over and it starts like messing with you and you have to mm-hmm. train like the confidence. You got to train the self-belief and it's really hard to do sometimes, especially when you're in that comparison mindset. Yeah. And I, and I also think too, with women, I mean, I think, you know, it's also how, how we're raised and culturally and, and maybe just, you know, biologically, like, right. Like we're not as like, as we are like more timid and and things like this. And so, you know, it's something that, but the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. And then it's also, you know, surrounding yourself with other people who have that same self-belief it's, it's contagious. It's, it's empowering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Um, so we've talked about a lot of different things where, what are you currently like that was how long ago was that injury? So the fall was in 2017. Um, and then since then I've had a few others, oh, but, um, 2019 was when I broke my ankle. That's when I returned back to Trump. So, and then actually just last year I broke my foot, but, um, <laughs> it was, uh, all related to this accident, you know, the ankle break and this foot break, which has been really hard to swallow because, you know, it's like my body has changed, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I guess if anything, that's just opportunities to, to really discover inner strength, I guess. There's your optimism. (laughs) (laughs) Even when it gets hard and I'm crying on the side of the road. (laughs) So coming back to what I asked you in the very beginning, I asked you about you know, how you pick your, your van adventures, but how are you picking your racing adventures now? Cause I know that it involves running, but it also is involving cycling. Yeah. Which is so cool because throughout a, a silver lining of all this is that I, I picked up gravel biking and, um, now I'm on the Pinarello gravel bike team as an <laughs> ambassador. I'm so excited about it. So I get to go back to my first ever bike race, um, which is unbound 200, <laughs> just a small so, race. <laughs> I know I decided to go big. So I was like, I'm an endurance mm-hmm. athlete. Might as well see if I can do it on a bike. <laughs> so, yeah. So honestly, for me, I really like to try new races. I think hopefully people can understand that about me. So, and I like to challenge myself. So I really like the vert, but now, you know, instead of the shorter sky races, like 50 K I've kind of gotten into the longer races. So, um, for a lot of people, they're like 50 K is short. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Sorry. It's all relative, but, um, <laughs> I've gotten into some longer races, more sky running. So lots of elevation gain, but over a, around like 75 to hundred miles. So the, my first race on the seat on the docket this year is actually a race that scares me because it only has 11,000 feet of gain over 62 miles. It's hundred K it's in the Pacific Northwest outside of Portland. It's called the gorge. 100 K gorge waterfalls, 100 K, but Hey, might as well try new scary things. It's a, it's more of a runnable faster race, but it's going to get me out of my comfort zone. (laughs) And then, yeah, this year I, I kind of, I'm, I'm choosing it between, um, gravel bike races, adventures, and, um, some running races. I have, UTMB. It's a hundred mile racer in the Alps this summer that I'm training. For. Wow. 
Yeah. I've definitely heard about that one. <laughs> yeah. I know the supposedly there's a gravel bike route around it. We'll see. <laughs> so how do you, how do you break up your training? I, I'm like going to have a baby any, any week here, but, um, <laughs> I was doing some trail running for a year, especially during the pandemic, trying to mix up trail running and mountain biking and I'm doing endurance mountain biking. So like for you and your training, how do you manage to be, you know, a top ultra runner doing these really long distances where it seems like you need to be running a lot and then mm-hmm. mixing it up with the the cycling fitness. You know, for me, I think, especially as an endurance athlete, like your heart doesn't know if you're running versus riding. I mean, obviously your legs do, <laughs> but for me, it's like, it's, I think cycling has allowed me to increase volume of my training, which is important as an endurance, as an endurance and ultra runner, because I need to be able to go for hours and hours on end. Um, and so that's really aided my, my, my training. And it's also been a chance for me to have a break, you know, from the impact of running. So I feel like it's really complimentary, but of course, you know, based on what event I'm training for, I'll up the run mileage and, you know, the taper, the cycling down, you know, leading up to a run race or vice versa for a cycling race. And it provides a really nice balance throughout the year. And, you know, kind of an ebb of ebb and flow of, you know, more running or less running, giving my body, you know, different breaks and stimulus. All right. Well, I want people to like connect more with you because I feel like that hour went by really, really fast. And there's so much <laughs> more to the hilly goat than we got to get into here. Where can people find your book and your podcast and more about you? Yeah. Thanks for asking a good landing page for everything is my website, uh, hillaryallen.com. So there's like links to everything there for, from my book and, um, coaching a podcast that I'm on. And then also my Instagram, um, hilly goat climbs. That's a good place where I post about all this stuff. Yeah. You post lots of really fun, fun stuff on there. I like following you. <laughs> oh, thanks. I like following you too and see what mountain biking you're getting into. I'm like, dang, what is she doing today? There's some good trail <laughs> running up here in BC. I'm sure you yeah. you're running up here, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And it was really fun to connect with you and hopefully our paths will cross in person where we'll actually see each other <laughs> in the near future. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. This is really great. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you want to go deeper into the Hilly Goat, she has been on some other really amazing podcasts that I think you would enjoy. And make sure you pick up her book. Her book has her entire story and it's really inspiring to read. I also really like following her Instagram. So go check her out there as well. Thank you as always for leaving a review for the show. If you haven't done so, it just takes a few seconds and it makes a huge difference in helping others find the show as well. So if you're enjoying it, chances are others will. And we really appreciate all of your support. The show is coming up rapidly on its five-year anniversary, which is really crazy to think that I've been doing this every week for five years. It's a really long time. Five years was a goal that I set when I initially started out on this podcast for consistency and for just making sure that I stick with it for a long time. And I'm excited to continue doing it past that five-year point. Thanks again for being here and paying attention and listening and focusing your life on being better every day. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.